Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be asking the question, is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough for you? So turn there with me, Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 1. There's a variety of interesting things in this passage, and we're going to try our best to highlight all of them. And this is what it says, starting with verse 1 in Mark chapter 6. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to Look at your word today. We're just so grateful, Lord, that you give us that privilege every time we gather together. And so, Lord, we value it. We consider it a real gift. It's something that we're just so grateful for, Lord, because it's through your word that you communicate your will. You help us to understand your heart. You help us to understand more about your nature and your desire for us as those who follow you and worship you. Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture that we would really wrestle with this idea of whether or not your son, Jesus Christ, is enough for us. We know, Lord, that there are many people in this world who believe that, and many people in this world who, as of yet, do not understand that. So, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to wrestle with that and figure out, as your Spirit gives us discernment, where we stand on a question like that. But, Lord, we're grateful for this moment. We're grateful for this time that you've given us to study your Word together. We pray that by your Spirit that you'd speak to our hearts and speak to our minds and help us to understand what we're looking at together from this passage. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a Sunday that I, my family's not usually here with us. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, some, uh, some of you actually, as you, as you came in today, said, uh, oh, I didn't know that, you would, that you'd be here today. Normally the last Sunday of the year your family is gone, or whatever Sunday falls right around New Year's. Because the week following Christmas, our family usually does something that involves a little bit of travel. And we still did that this year, but we did it a little bit differently. It's usually a very fun week either way for our family, because what we normally do is we usually spend 
the week following Christmas making extended drives to visit our family that live in a variety of places. So normally we go out to Pittsburgh and out to uh, up near Buffalo, New York, and then up near Scranton. This year we didn't go to Pittsburgh, but we still went up to uh, Fredonia, New York, where my wife grew up and uh, right near Buffalo. We also spent some time visiting extended family near Scranton, Pennsylvania. And while in Scranton, we helped throw a surprise birthday party for my father. Today is his actual birthday, but we did it two days early, which made it an extra surprise because it wasn't even on his birthday, right? Now, I don't know what kind of conversations you enjoy around the table when you get together with your family. Some of you are probably still reeling from some of those conversations over, over Christmas. Uh, and I don't know what the tone sounds like as you have these conversations with your family over, uh, over holidays, but there are certain subjects that I can almost guarantee my extended family will bring up when we're having a meal together. We will talk about our careers and our children. When we get those things out of the way, we'll end up talking about food, cars, and politics. So then we get that out of the way. And at some point, someone will usually ask me a theological question. So then I'll answer that theological question. And then we'll kind of look at each other and just go, oh, okay. And then we get that out of the way. And then eventually, someone will bring up one of the subjects of either personal finance or investing or who won at last year's game of Monopoly. Those are the subjects. I gave great thought to that. When I was putting that list together, I was like, what are the things that we talk about? And I walked through, I was like, those are the main things. Almost always. Family members, wouldn't you agree? Did I hit the main ones? I did. All right, good. There's also an unwritten rule in our family that I didn't realize was there until I reached my 40s. I didn't know it was there. But if I had to summarize the rule, it might sound something like this. You don't know anything until you're 40. And even then, we're still not positive you know anything. I think that's the unwritten rule, right? I didn't know anything until I was 40. And then once I hit 40, ah, we're not sure you still know anything, right? Uh, I live, I've lived on the edge of both sides of that rule, especially this year. Now, this is how this played out this year. On the positive side of that rule, um, one of my uncles, who I consider one of my primary examples of how to manage personal finances, he asked my opinion on a financial matter. And I thought, he's asking my opinion on this. I thought, wow, <clears throat> all right, you know, clear my throat, get ready, give an answer here. I shared my thoughts, and he thought it was very helpful, very interesting. And then more than once said, now make sure you follow up with me about that. I want you to send some of that to me via email so I don't have to trust my memory. I was like, okay, I'll do that. I was like, wow, okay, that worked out rather well. Apparently, I'm on the positive side of that line, right? At least with my uncle. But then on the not-so-positive side was my father, who did not accept my advice when we were playing Monopoly. Uh, I offered him a property trade that would have been a win-win scenario for both of us. It would have given him a monopoly on the yellows and me a monopoly with boardwalk and park place. It would have been, it would have been great. And I also explained to him, and you could confirm this with, with my children, uh, but I explained, I said, Dad, don't you understand, if you don't take this trade, there is no other way that you or I will win this game. 
There's no other option. It's just this. If you don't accept this trade, there's no way you get a monopoly and no way I get a monopoly. And he looked at that. Actually, he, he looked at that and he made this noise. He went, that's what he said. That is a direct quote from my father. I don't know how to spell that, but that's what he said. That's what came out of his mouth. He rejected the suggestion, and as a result, we were the first two people eliminated from the game. And I, and I was a little mad at him for a little bit, and I was like, it's just Monopoly. We're here celebrating his birthday. I wish he didn't have to ruin it, but just the same he did. Um, and it was fun. But can you relate with those kinds of scenarios? Do you ever have scenarios like that? I don't know where you are in the pecking order in your family. But there's probably something I said there that reminded you of how you interacted with some family members somewhere along the way. And there, it's, it's possible that along the way, maybe there's a season where you felt ignored. Or maybe you felt dismissed by people who have known you since the days of your youth. And uh, when you interact with people that you have known for a very long time, doesn't it sometimes feel like they might be the hardest people to actually convince that you might actually know what you're talking about? The people that have known you for the longest period of time, the people that knew you in your childhood and in you know, your, your adolescence and your teenage years, I mean, you know, sometimes it's hard to convince those people that you actually know what you're talking about. And when you look at the portion of Scripture that we just read together, and we'll reread portions of it together in just a moment. But it reveals to us that Jesus experienced that same kind of scenario during his earthly ministry. That is not an uncommon scenario. It's exactly what Jesus experienced. We're, we're told in Scripture that his family resisted his teaching, at least for a time. And the people of his hometown are really highlighted in this passage. They completely rejected the plain meaning of what he taught when he was right there in their midst. In fact, look at what it tells us when you look at the opening verses of Mark chapter 3. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So that's what the scripture says related to the people in his hometown. So here, just to kind of summarize this, it tells us that on the Sabbath, Jesus began speaking in the synagogue in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. And as he had experienced when he spoke in Capernaum, if you remember when we looked at the scriptures where Jesus was speaking in the synagogue in Capernaum, the people that heard his teaching were actually astonished. They would hear the things that he would say and they'd, they'd say, he speaks with such authority. How is he... How does he know this? How is he able to talk like this? We've never heard anyone talk like this. And here in the context of Nazareth, he's also speaking with great clarity and with great authority, his teachings demonstrating great wisdom and great understanding. And the people of Nazareth were looking at him and thinking, how can someone who grew up in this community, how could someone from here have obtained such knowledge and such ability? They were scratching their heads. And, and Nazareth, if you were in Nazareth, it was the type of place that if you were from there, you kind of looked down at your hometown. Now, I, I have mentioned this from time to time. Um, Northeast Pennsylvania, I, I mean, several of us in this room grew up there uh, just a couple hours north of here. I love Northeast Pennsylvania for a lot of reasons. But if you grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania, you'll understand this. That part of our state, 
has a little bit of a complex about itself. It gets down on itself very, very easily because much of that area of the state was founded during the coal mining era in the state of Pennsylvania, and coal mining is not still a dominant industry, and since the dominant industry has left, certain pockets have really struggled ever since then, but yet you'll find the nicest people, and you'll find some of the best foods that you'll ever eat that have been passed along generation to generation, and uh, lots and lots of good and redeeming and positive things. But if you talk to anybody from Northeast Pennsylvania, you'll quickly discover that many people, not everybody, but many people feel kind of down on the region, almost like nothing good can happen there and nothing good could come from there. Nazareth was that kind of place. When they thought of their town, they're like, what, like, what good could come from this place? And other people thought of that too. They're like, Nazareth, like, what good comes out of Nazareth? Like, there's nothing good that comes out of Nazareth. And so they're hearing Jesus teach, and they're, they're listening to him talk, and they're just thinking about all these things, and they're like, how does somebody from here know that stuff? How does somebody from here speak with such authority? They really couldn't wrap their mind around it. We're also told in this context here, as this is all taking place, Mark outlined some of this for us, some very interesting things. We're told a little bit more about Jesus' earthly family and his occupation. So as his earthly father Joseph had done, it's revealed here that Jesus practiced the trade of carpentry. I, I think about this a lot too. My, my father-in-law loves woodworking. Um, you know, three of my children have gone to trade school for different things. We live in a, 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 an era where I think people are starting to value trades a little more, which I'm very happy about. But for a period of time, I don't know that people valued trades the way that they should. And then you look at what Jesus did during the course of his earthly ministry, and he was a carpenter. He understood carpentry, and he practiced that with Joseph for a period of time. And we're also told here a little bit about the family structure there. Following the birth of Jesus, the scripture here reveals that Joseph and Mary had additional sons and daughters. Now, this, you know, I love our, our, our Catholic friends, okay? But if you ever, I'm not encouraging you to get in an argument with your Catholic friends, all right? And anyone that's listening to this that's Catholic or anyone here has a Catholic background, I'm about to say something that m might get me in a fight with a Catholic, all right? So do people do that? Do Protestants and Catholics still fight? We still friends? We, we, we don't fight anymore about this stuff, do we? I don't know. Let's see. We'll find out. I'll know soon. Um, little, little controversy here, but let's stick with what the Scripture says. The Scripture actually reveals here, related to the, to the family of the earthly family of Jesus, that Joseph and Mary had additional sons and daughters. And it lists four of their names. There's at least six other ones. There could be more than six. It doesn't actually tell you how many daughters. But it tells you plural, so there's at least two. And it lists four other sons. So we're told here, uh, you know, their names, their names are listed here in the Scripture. And by the way, let me point out two of those sons, uh, James and Judas. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus, this isn't the Judas that betrayed Jesus, but do you ever think about the fact that Jesus had a brother named Judas? Do you ever think about that? We, they stopped calling him Judas after a while. That name fell out of favor. Uh, I, I doubt any of you have named your children that as a first name or a middle name either. That name kind of stopped being used right after Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. But prior to that, so you see James and you see Judas, 
Judas eventually was just called Jude. They just called him Jude. And James, they kept the name James, but they, at this point, they don't believe in Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, as God in the flesh. But they're his brothers, but those two guys eventually became very influential in the early church. And when you go to the end of the New Testament, you'll see a book called James. You know who wrote that? That guy, the half-brother of Jesus. The reason I'm saying half-brother is because James and uh, Jude were conceived by Joseph and Mary, Jesus being conceived by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, through Mary. Uh, So that's why I'm referencing them as half-brothers. But uh, James became a, a great leader in the early church, and Jude became very influential as well, and they wrote two of the books that we have here in the New Testament. And, uh, but the impression that we're given at this point, and when you look at the other gospel accounts, is that prior to the resurrection of Christ, these men, these children, these siblings, they didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, they shared a similar reaction to Jesus that the people of Nazareth had. They didn't believe in him. They didn't understand or accept the, the fact or the concept that he's God. But then when you look at verses 4 through 6, it tells us this in response to this. It says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So here it's telling us that the, the disbelief of the people of his hometown, it really stood out to Jesus. It really stood out to him. He marveled at it. And yet he also addressed it directly. And he acknowledged the fact that it's historically common. He's saying this isn't uncommon. This is what people do all the time. When, when God sends someone with a divinely ordained message, what do people tend to do? We say, you know what, that sounds unfamiliar. That sounds different. I'm not used to seeing things like that, therefore I reject it. And Jesus says that's exactly what people do historically. Prophets are typically rejected by those that should have known them best. But because of their unbelief here in this particular context, the people of Nazareth, they missed the privilege of witnessing Jesus do mighty works in their town. They did not believe. And apart from faith, you know what Scripture tells us pleases God? So many people think you have to go through life keeping this checklist and that checklist. And there's certainly, I mean, the Lord wants us to obey Him, absolutely. But what's at the core of genuine obedience? You know what pleases the Lord, Scripture says? Faith. You genuinely trust in Him, and then the obedience that you show in your life comes from genuine faith. That's different than just keeping a checklist for the sake of keeping a checklist. Faith is what pleases the Lord in your life and in my life and in the lives of the people living during this era. And they didn't believe in Jesus. The people of Nazareth didn't believe in Him, and so they missed seeing the opportunity or having the opportunity or even, you know, taking advantage of the fact that Christ was right there, able to do mighty works in their town, but they rejected that. And so there were no, there was no, I mean, it tells us here that Jesus healed a few people, but there was no mighty miracle done right there in their midst like other places had had the privilege to see. Now, one of the companion scriptures to this passage in Mark 6 is found in Luke 4. We're not going to turn there, but I do want to reference something from it. When you look at Luke chapter 4, and it gives us some additional details of what was going on, in that passage, we're told that Jesus was reading from the book of Isaiah when he was speaking in the synagogue in Nazareth. 
So this Old Testament prophet, one of the major prophets, one of the largest books of the Old Testament, so many things in the book of Isaiah that point to Jesus. And Jesus was speaking from that book. And then as he was speaking from that book, he looked at the group in the room. He's reading from the scroll. He looks at the group in the synagogue, and he tells them that he was the fulfillment of the prophecies that Isaiah had spoken in that passage. And the people lost their mind. They lost their mind when he said, right here in your hearing, this is fulfilled. This is fulfilled. He was saying to them, I'm, I'm here fulfilling the very things that Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years earlier. And the people lost their mind. And not only did they lose their mind, they actually decided, you know what our solution to this will be? We're not only rejecting Jesus, but let's throw him off a cliff. And so that's what they planned to do. They, the, you know, they, they rush out of the synagogue and they attempt to throw Jesus off a cliff. That's their solution. Now, I just said some things that were, at least in some theological circles, maybe a little controversial. Nobody got up out of their chair to try and throw the speaker off the cliff. But when Jesus said what he was saying, especially as he was saying, these scriptures are pointing to me, the room lost their mind. They tried to throw him off the cliff. And it's interesting because it tells us that in the midst of all of that, Jesus just walked out in the midst of like the chaos of the crowd. He slid right through the crowd and walked away. And I imagine the people were eventually like, where did he go? Where is he? They tried to murder him. They rejected his ministry. They missed the blessing of what he could have done right there in their midst. And so Jesus left Nazareth and he went and he taught elsewhere. Very similar to when he was in the Gerasenes, isn't it? And the people said, what? Leave us. What you're doing is unfamiliar, it's different. Leave us. And here the people in Nazareth, they, they try and kill him. And so he leaves and he goes and he teaches elsewhere. And the scripture tells us, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So the ministry of Jesus, when you look at what's taking place here in the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, his ministry actually involves multiple things. It involves teaching. It involves healing. We even see demons being cast out of people. But it also involved the intentional effort to train other people. And we see this in particular when we observe the work that he entrusted to the apostles as they were called now to go out among the villages, encouraging others to repent and believe in the gospel. And when I look at this portion of scripture and others where Jesus does similar things, this activity of Jesus actually stands out to me as something that the church of our era should do our best to emulate, to copy, right? Christians are called to do a variety of things, but one of the things that we're called in our era to do is this very thing. We're called to train other Christians and give them as many opportunities as possible to be able to use their God-ordained gifts. We're called to mentor one another. Scripture gives us multiple examples where we're called to do that, to mentor one another, to actually take time to mentor or disciple another believer in Christ. We're called to do that. We're also called to entrust the, the work of ministry to those we're mentoring. So to teach people, to mentor them, but then trust them to do something with what they've been taught. Local churches that follow that pattern, notice this, just think of the churches you're already familiar with, but local churches that actually follow that pattern, what they end up doing is they replicate leaders, they grow strong, 
They end up sending people out into various aspects of the mission field, and they tend to have a long and fruitful ministry. Local churches that minimize the responsibility to train and raise up new leaders and mentor and disciple people, local churches that minimize that or fail to do it at all, they end up becoming small, ingrown, ineffective, and very weak. I've seen that happen many, many times. I bet you have as well. I remember when I was a brand new pastor in my early 20s, I was at a church in the Binghamton, New York area, and on the the back wall of the sanctuary, that church had only been around, well, no, it had been around for almost a century, but in that century had only had like three or four pastors, and that was it. And so at the end of each pastor's ministry, they would actually commission a portrait of the guy, and they'd put this like a big portrait of the guy in the back of the room. So imagine being the next pastor and having to see the face of your predecessor every Sunday when you preach, because that's exactly what it was like. You see those big faces, they're right in the back of the room. So the person that mainly sees them is the next pastor having to see the guy that came before him, right? You get to stare at his face the whole time. But I remember looking at this wall, and I asked about one of the, one of the men in particular to somebody, and I was told this about him. They, they said that pastor in particular They said he had a knack for giving ministry away, and I asked them to tell me a little bit more about it, and they said, well, what he ended up doing was he actually trained a lot of men who became pastors in other places, and I thought that was fascinating, and they also told me that one of the hallmarks of his ministry was very simply a desire to mentor and raise up additional leaders. They said that's what he spent a lot of time focusing on, and as a result, a lot of churches received leadership through that church because of that pastor helping to raise up additional leaders, and that church itself ended up becoming very, very strong and having a a, a very healthy and, and long ministry because so many people were given the opportunity to use their gifts in ministry. And I remember after I heard that, after I learned that assessment of that of that pastor's ministry, I thought, you know what, by the grace of God, I want to do my best to follow that same pattern. I want to try my best to follow the same pattern. And the idea is, instead of trying to hoard ministry to myself, I thought, I want to give as much ministry away as possible so that the local church never becomes dependent on the efforts of just one person. And then we come back to the principle that Jesus is teaching here in this passage by his activity, by his words, by the things that he's doing. He's sending the apostles out to actually give them the opportunity to do the things that he's been training them to do. And it tells us here he sent the apostles out into the villages. And he told them, go in groups of two. Don't go by yourself. Go with somebody. Go in groups of two. And then he also told them, he was very specific about what he said to bring or not to bring. And I don't know if you noticed the similarity here, but he told them, to basically bring the same things that the Israelites were instructed to take with them when they left Egypt after eating the Passover. Did you notice the similarity? Let me actually just show you this. It's from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 11. There, the the people of Israel were told, in this manner you shall eat it, speaking of the Passover, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." And then you look at the way that these apostles were sent out into the villages. It was with that same demeanor, with the same attire, with the same uh, aspect of, of, um, you know, what you would have in your hand and how you'd go about uh, what you were doing in ministry here. And the apostles, they accept the instructions of Christ. 
They go out into the villages. They proclaim the gospel. They encounter people who repent. They cast out demons. They heal the sick. And in this way, the gospel continues to spread among the people. And when you look at the companion scriptures, these disciples, these apostles, they were amazed as they got a taste for ministry. They were amazed. They, were thought, they, they just thought, wow, like, how wonderful that we got to see and experience and be part of this, that the Lord allowed us to do this. I'll tell you what, if you ever, if you ever feel like your faith is growing a bit stagnant, and I've gone through different seasons throughout the course of my adult life where I felt like, yeah, my faith is growing a little stagnant. If you ever feel like your faith is growing stagnant, I know a cure for it. And the cure for it isn't to just kind of uh, just become enmeshed in yourself and just kind of wall yourself in. The idea is find a way to serve somebody else for Christ's glory, even if it's in some small way. It awakens something about our faith. And the disciples here, as they, go, as they go out, they start proclaiming the message of the gospel. They're even given authority over demons and over illness and so many amazing things they get to see. And the gospel spreads among the people, and the, the disciples are enthused as they're going through this. And when you look at verse 10, it tells us this. It says, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It's a beautiful thing. I also find it very interesting, and, and even as we, as we kind of prepare to finish up this morning, I, I, I want to kind of hammer this home before we do. I find it interesting that Jesus made it, that he made certain that the apostles knew that they could count on the Lord to supply their needs as they fulfilled this task. As they went about doing what the Lord was calling them to do, they were invited to understand you could trust the Lord to meet your needs in the midst of it. Jesus made it, he made it very clear to them that they did not need to overthink this journey. Their needs would be providentially provided for. What they needed would be supplied. So he said, all right, if you need a place to stay, one's going to be given to you. And when that's offered to you, accept it gladly. So you're going to need a place to stay as you go and visit these villages. Accept the, the opportunity to stay wherever you're given the opportunity to be. When you need other resources, you're going to be able to trust the Lord to grant those things as well. I think that's such a, a healthy thing for us to ponder in the midst of an age that I think is rather materialistic, don't you? The fact that the Lord meets our needs, the, the fact that the Lord supplies what we need when we need it, and that we could trust Him to do so. We live in an era, and I guess it's not unique to our era, but this is the one we live in, so this is the one we can analyze from the first-person perspective. But it's true that of our era, we, we live in a context where people place much too much faith in material things. And we as Christians are oftentimes just as guilty of doing that, just as much as we would say the world at large is guilty of doing that, we as Christians at times can be guilty of doing that, placing way too much trust in material things. Now, here's the thing. When you read the Bible, one of my favorite Psalms is, is Psalm 112. And for many, uh, you know, there it kind of tells you how to be a man who takes care of his family. I love that Psalm. I read it regularly. For many women, they'll read a, a, a proverb like Proverbs 31 and say, this is what it looks like to be a woman who takes care of my family. 
So you got Psalm 112 saying, men, live like this. Treat your family like this. You got Proverbs 31 saying, women, live like this and treat your family like this. And so you could look at these things, you could say, all right, it's very obvious that the Bible in passages like those, it teaches things like practicing frugality, making wise investments, working hard to meet the needs of our family. Those things are all there, right? So those are, those are good things. Those aren't bad things. There's, I think those are all admirable activities. But those things, even while they're being practiced, are never to become the source of our deepest sense of contentment. They're good practices, but our faith doesn't rest on those things. Our contentment should always rest in Christ. He meets our needs. He supplies what we need when we need it. Are you familiar with the name Dan Miller? Is that a name you're familiar with? I mean, it's a very common name. Some of you I know are familiar with it. I know you've read his books. Uh, He's an author. He's written some very well-known books. He hosts a very popular podcast. Um, A few years ago, I actually had the privilege to get to know him as a friend. So he's somebody that I now consider uh, a friend. I'll show you a picture. This is a picture of me and my son Daniel, and that's Dan Miller and his wife Joanne. Uh, When I was speaking at a conference last year in Orlando, uh, Dan invited my son and I to join him for lunch with a few other people. And so we got together and joined him for lunch. He's somebody I, at this point now, I consider a friend and someone I really look up to. And, um, you know, I thought it was really neat, too. At the end of this lunch, Dan and Joanne just took a little time to pray for my son. And I was really, really grateful that they, they did that. And, I, and, you know, you know the type of stuff that I'm into, that I'm into writing and podcasting and stuff like that. And so I kind of look at people that are a bit ahead of me, uh, people who love the Lord that are doing things like that. He, I don't think he would mind me saying this because I've heard him say it publicly, but just to give you an idea of, you know, the, the caliber of author he is, um, you know, his stuff is out there. It's all over the place. I remember when he got a, a you know how authors are given an advance for their books? Sometimes, like if you have a major publisher, they'll give you an advance. So even before you write the book, they'll pay you up front. They'll give you money based on what they think it's going to sell. I remember uh, when he released one of his books, his publisher paid him $300,000 before he even wrote the book. They're like, here's $300,000 because we already know the book's going to be a good book based on your other stuff. So he's a pretty like high caliber author. And um, somebody that I just really look up to just as a man, just as a godly man who loves his wife, loves his family, really goes out of his way to invest in other people. And I I really thought it it was just so kind of him to even treat us to lunch and and, uh, pray pray over my son. Love that. Well, a couple days ago, on Friday, I actually received an email from him letting me know that he just found out on December 7th, he's just making this public, that he has an advanced form of pancreatic cancer that has spread to his bones, it's spread to his liver, it's spread to other organs, and he's been told he doesn't have much time left. In fact, he was, he was told by his doctor, you might have a few weeks. That's what he was told. And, uh, and I was like, oh man. And I, I told Daniel, I was like, Daniel, I just got this email from Dan. Uh, he's like, what's it say? And I, so I read it for him, or I, I forwarded it to him so he could read it. And I look at that, And I looked at what he said, and he's like, you know, here's the thing. I recognize I don't have a lot of time left on this earth. And and his comment was, 
What a gift that is to know that. I was like, Dan, you're, you're like amazing. He said, what a gift it is to know it. So the Lord's allowed me to know ahead of time. I have a very short time. So he spent a lot of time with his wife, with his kids, with his grandkids, and all the people that, that look up to him, people like me. And I thought it was neat because he said, he said, you know, in the midst of all this, he said, I've been blessed with all the things in this world that, that most people would want to be blessed with, and now it's time for it all to be taken away. So it's all going to be taken away. I don't get to keep it. It's all going to be taken away. It's all going to be given to other people. And he made clear, look, I'm not trying to hold on to the things of this world. Um, these are the things that aren't important to me. He's convinced, as he's looking at this and he has time to reflect on this, he said, I'm convinced that I have done what the Lord has called me to do with my life. And he said he's content to trust the Lord for what comes next. And he said, uh, in the midst of it again, that he knows that every earthly thing that he ever worked for, it's about to be taken away, and he has perfect peace with the idea of those things being shared with others because he has Jesus, and he said he's approaching the coming weeks with a sense of joy, a sense of contentment, and a sense of expectation. He's like, I, I know what I get to see in just a few weeks' time. And I look at that, and I think about Mark chapter 6, and I think about Jesus sending the disciples out, and he says, listen, you don't have to take a whole bunch of stuff. You don't have to hold on to all the things of this world. You don't have to convince yourself that all this stuff that everybody's trying to hold so tightly onto is what you really need. Your needs are going to be met. What you really need is going to be met. You will be enabled, you will be supplied to do the task I've called you to do. The task you've been called to do, you will be given what you need to do that task. And what Jesus was trying to teach those disciples in that early season of their ministry was the same lesson that we're being taught as well. If we have Jesus, we have what we need most in this world. Now, it's a pretty unique thing to be able to look at a friend. It's, you, you, you could tell people you believe stuff, but it's when things get tested that you find out if you really believe it. And then other people get to look at you and find out, do you really believe it? It's not when everything's going easy. It's when things get tested. Then you get to find out, do you really believe it? Well, I'm glad that my friend Dan really believes it. He completely owns that. He completely has just great contentment knowing that if he has Jesus... He has exactly what he needs. And here's the thing. It's the last Sunday of the year. In a few hours, we'll be starting a new year. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. The question we asked at the start of our message today was this. Is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough? I'll tell you what. There are a lot of people that are going to spend this year striving after things they can't keep. They're going to spend all their mental energy and be frustrated and spend so much time trying to get stuff that's not theirs to keep anyway. Stuff that absolutely will be leaving them someday. Stuff that will be taken away or lost or given up. But for you and I, as we approach a new year, is Jesus enough? Or do we feel like we have to have everything else too? The interesting thing is that Jesus reminds us that when we have him, we have everything we need. And he reminds us that there's going to be a day 
where we get to spend eternity in his presence, rejoicing together with him, fellowshipping with him, even eating together with him in eternity. I sent Dan a message last night, and I said, Dan, there are a lot of things that I want to express to you that I appreciate about you, but one of the things I'm looking forward to is the fact, I said, first of all, I just want to thank you again for lunch last year with my son. I'm glad that we had the chance to do that. But I said, you know what? I'm looking forward to the fact that we're going to have lunch together soon in Christ's kingdom. Isn't that a wonderful thought for all of us? The fact that as we look forward to the future, we really have a future to look forward to. The things of this earth, it's all going to go away. But if we have Jesus, we have exactly what we need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for the fact that we get to see in scriptures like we read together today that you are sufficient for us. Lord, your son sent his disciples out into this world and told them, don't worry about taking all the things that this world tells you you're going to need for this journey. It's all going to be supplied for you. Just go where I tell you to go, and you're going to get exactly what you need. And you're going to be good. And you're going to be able to do what I've called you to do. And Lord, we know that that wasn't just a message for disciples who lived centuries ago. That's a message for us too. You send us out into this world as men and women who can testify to the fact that you're wonderful. You've changed our minds, you've changed our hearts, you've given us a brand new life. We're just so grateful for that. Lord, we know that our time on this earth is brief, and this is a a day or even a week where a lot of people think about time. We think about the year that passed, and we think about the year that's coming, and we think, what do I want to do with this time? What should I spend my energy focused on? And Lord, it's so sad to think that, that... Much of humanity is going to spend their time and spend their energy focused on the wrong things, wasting time thinking that they're striving after things that are of eternal benefit that aren't. And then again, we look at your word and you remind us that you are enough. So Lord, if there's something that we're convinced that we have to have to have contentment, and that something is anything other than you, We pray that we would submit that down to you right now, Lord, and just confess that that was an idol that we allowed to take root in our life, and it doesn't belong there. So, Lord, we pray that we would give our idols over to you and that we would rest in the fact that you are sufficient, you are enough. The hope that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ, carries us through in the midst of a of the closing of one chapter of life and and the, the opening of the next. You are sufficient in every stage. Father, we're so grateful for these things. Thank you for reminding us of what matters most. And again, thank you, Lord, for the people that you've placed in our lives who also model for us what it's like to demonstrate genuine faith, particularly when that faith gets tested. Father, we lift up Dan and Joanne before you. We pray that you'd help them through this season. We pray that you'd strengthen their faith and help their family. And Lord, we pray that for each of us, 
whatever season we're going through. There's always trials, there's always difficulties that come our way. Help us to know that we could submit those things over to you and that you are infinitely good. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.